Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. This week, we visit my home, Floyd County, Virginia, for its weekly Friday night jamboree. This is my first time. I think you've been here before. Yeah, I've been to Floyd several times, yeah. And what's kept you coming back? The music. Why are y'all here tonight? The music. The music. (laughs) We also check in with volunteers from around the country who've come to flood-damaged eastern Kentucky. If I had to go and do one of the jobs we've been doing by myself, I, I wouldn't be able to do it. Working with like-minded people who want to serve, it's amazing. And we hear about the effort that secured women the right to vote. The whole idea of suffrage and that basic right of Americans to be able to vote, to be able to participate in government, that story needs to be told somehow. You'll hear these stories and more this week inside Appalachia. Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. We begin the show this week in the community where I live, Floyd, Virginia. It's this sprawling county of about 15,000 people on the Blue Ridge Plateau, catty corner to Roanoke and Blacksburg. There's one stoplight in the county, and it's in the town of Floyd, a tiny little place home to about 500 year-round residents. Except on Friday nights town's population doubles, triples, or more from people traveling up the steep slopes of the Blue Ridge to come to Floyd's Friday Night Jamboree. Every week, you find people from all walks of life, different places, different politics, different ages, coming together at the Floyd Country Store to sing, dance, play music, listen to it, and just take everything in. In the summer, Music spills from the main stage and dance floor in the Floyd Country Store out onto the sidewalk. And that's where I first saw Chad Ritchie and Robbie Harmon. I'm going to Western Country now, Susan Anna. I'm going to Western Country now, Susan Anna girl. Chad's on the fiddle, and Robbie's playing banjo. They traveled up two hours from Wilkesboro, North Carolina. This is my first time. I think you've been here before. Yeah, I've been to Floyd several times, yeah. And what's kept you coming back? The music. Why are y'all here tonight? The music. The music. (laughs) Well, you know, just coming up here, it's like, wow, it's like everything revolves around the music. You know, it seems like where we're from, music kind of, you know, you fit it in with your life. Around here, music is life. The main event each Friday is the jamboree that takes place inside the Floyd Country Store. But there's a whole scene. Here's David Easterly, one of the greeters inside the jamboree. We have the uh, the gospel band, 6.30 to 7.30, dance band, 7.30 to 10. Come in here, go outside, people dance in here, dance outside. Inside or outside, you find all kinds of folks. Locals, like Curtis Newell, who lives nearby and has a reserved seat. We've got a lot of friends here. It's been coming for 20 or 30 years. And, you know, you come every week basically a lot to see them. Or Tracy Elliott, who began driving 226 miles here with her husband weekly after they found out about it on the Internet. We had uh, never heard this type of music. We had never danced a day in our life, and now we dance every week. Or a music school graduate from South Carolina, who along with her husband traveled up on a church friend's recommendation. I'm just here to take it all in. This isn't really the genre that I'm most familiar with. You know, I do opera professionally, um, so it's a bit of a change, but I'm really excited, especially for the gospel set. Now, Floyd County is a politically red county. Republicans pretty reliably win about two-thirds of the vote each year. But at the Jamboree... You find people of all political persuasions, dancing, singing, and playing music together. Kirsten Griffiths says that's one thing she likes about the Jamboree. It's diversity of all kinds. It is funny because, you know, some of us have some agreements. We kind of can pleasantly tease each other politically because we are going to be on complete and utter opposite ends of the spectrum. But we will dance together most of the time. I heard from people time and again about how friendly the dance floor is. Like Maggie from down the mountain in Franklin County. 
it doesn't matter if you know somebody's name or not. They're just, everybody is really encouraging. And it's the kind of place where when you come and you want to try something new, you don't really feel that shy to do it. If you're dancing, you're doing better than anyone who's not. Floyd local and Jamboree regular Roger Dickerson still remembers the first time he went up on the dance floor. I've always loved bluegrass, but I didn't know how to dance. And I come up here one, one Friday night and a girl from Bassett come up here and jerked me out of the seat and she said, you're going to learn how to dance. And I said, if you let go of my hand, I'm running back to my seat. It scared me to death because I'm all, I'm all feet. And she showed me how to flat foot and I've been doing it ever since. And I tell people all the time, I said, you come to dance? And they said, no, we're just curious. We want to hear the music. I said, the music is good, but I said, when you get out on that floor, it's another world. One of the first music circles that got going outside was made up of kids. They're just learning how to play fiddles, banjos, and guitars at the country store's handmade music school. College student Sophie Meckel, who's been teaching the youth class, leads them through a rendition of Short and Bread. Moms and dads sit around the perimeter, visiting, listening to the music, smiling and clapping. Morgan Grimm is one of those moms. She praises Floyd's music community for being so welcoming. Even these kids you're watching now, some of them are strumming for the first time, but there's an invitation of coming being part of this music community. The kids have been part of the Friday Night Jamboree since it first started. And some of them who started coming way back then have grown into adults who still come now, like Chris Perlman, who lives just down the mountain in Farron, Virginia. You know, when I was just a boy, I'd come here, and they play music over at the, at the fire department, too. Okay, yep. And I'd go from there to here, from there to here. I'd run backwards and forwards, you know, I was just a chap, you know, and I'd run from there to here. And... Floyd's Friday Night Jamboree officially started in the mid-'80s, when Freeman Cochran started keeping his general store open Friday evenings for people who wanted to play and hear string band music. Since then, the business has changed hands several times. But each new owner, five of them now, has kept the jamboree going. Dylan Locke and Heather Krantz are the current owners. They bought it eight years ago. But they don't see themselves as owners so much as stewards. Here's Krantz. It's never belonged to us. It's not something that I think belongs to anyone. You know, it belongs to this community and it belongs to the people that show up. On the night I'm there, Krantz is out there, playing in the circle along with the kids from the Handmade Music School. She says their job keeping the jamboree going requires, well, playing right along with everyone else who's part of it. You have to listen or else it doesn't work, right? And same with playing music. If you're playing in a jam or something, like, you, ha you have to be listening to the other people around you. Krantz and Locke are doing more besides just keeping the jamboree going each Friday. They've grown their music schedule to include events on Thursdays, Saturdays, and Sundays, too. Sometimes they host a big national act at the store. Bela Fleck, Killian Welch, and Floyd's own Morgan Wade have all played here. They're also honoring the past with a bluegrass distribution business and an attempt to document the region's musical history through a program called Music in the Mountains. And the Handmade Music School is paying it forward and building the next generation of musicians. All that contributes to the Friday Night Jamboree. It takes work and intention to build community. And when it's done right, it can attract people from around the world. Well, we're Chris and Fiona. Last year we set out from Europe to come across the Atlantic on a sailing boat and uh, spent the winter in the Caribbean and then have, uh, came up to Chesapeake uh, about two months ago and then we decided to explore inland a bit. We wanted to see some bluegrass music, so here we are. If you came from an awfully long, we know we got North Carolina, we got Arkansas, so we already know some folks traveled a good long way to be here with us. At intermission during the Jamboree, Dylan Locke always comes out, does a raffle, and awards a Floyd Country Store baseball cap to whoever came from farthest away. Um, so if you think you traveled farther away, then yell it out, please. 
England. All right, well, there we go. That's farther away than Arkansas, Amanda. So England's from farthest away, so we'll get you all up here in just a minute. Anybody from pretty far away and want to yell it out and love where you're from and want to tell us that? West Palm Beach. West Palm Beach, Maryland. Kenya. Kenya. That's pretty far away. So tell us your name and what brings you here from Kenya. My name is Nyambura and um, I got married uh, to, to Eric. So that's why I'm here. We drove from Virginia. So um, technically I shouldn't be getting the hat because we drove from Woodbridge, but I am from Kenya. So I still think you should go to the people from England. Give it to them. Well, hey, that was very generous of you, and it was really nice to meet you. Yeah, and, and congratulations. After the jamboree, I caught up with Nambora Kiari and asked what brought her to Floyd. Turns out, she and Eric found it in a guidebook. And there's another reason. Growing up in Kenya, we listened to a lot of country music, but the old school country music, like Don Williams and uh, Dolly Patron, and the country music that I listen to growing up sounds so much like bluegrass music. So when I listen to bluegrass music, it reminds me of home. And that's the true magic of the Friday Night Jamboree. It doesn't matter if you're from Floyd, or from England, or from Kenya. If you're a Democrat or Republican. If you're two or 92. It just feels like home. Twenty twenty was the one hundred year anniversary of the nineteenth amendment of the U.S. Constitution. That's what guaranteed women the right to vote. Now, West Virginia lawmakers want to build a memorial to celebrate the nineteenth amendment. They formed a committee to make it happen. To learn more, reporter Chris Schultz sat down with committee members Renata Poor and Susan Pierce. How did the committee come to be? Renata, why don't we start with you? In 2019, I volunteered to promote the centennial of women's right to vote. So we started doing research about the West Virginia experience in ratifying women's right to vote. And we found it was a really pretty dramatic, pretty exciting, pretty intense kind of an experience. Uh, And so we had some events, but 2020 turned out to be a bust of the year with COVID. But we found that many other states had memorials to women's suffrage, and we should have one too. And and the work of women in West Virginia needs to be reflected on the Capitol grounds. So we went to the legislature, actually, and we got a resolution passed, and it was very popular. The legislators, for the most part, were real enthusiastic. Susan, do you have anything to add to that? I think our committee is composed of dedicated women who want to see women's right to vote memorialized on the campus. So I think adding a memorial to our campus will will broaden the picture of women's role in West Virginia's history. And this is a very important role in our history, too. Can you tell me a little bit more about who these suffragists were and and why you wanted to create this memorial? I think it's important to have a memorial during the centennial. We looked for resources that were associated with women's history and with women's the women's suffrage movement. And frankly, unfortunately, there aren't a whole lot out there that have survived. And actually, if anyone who's listening says, well, I know of so-and-so's house who was a suffragist in my hometown, I would love to hear from them. The whole idea of suffrage and that basic right of Americans to be able to vote, to be able to participate in government, that story needs to be told somehow. And I think the memorial will take us to a place that we can interpret that story and we can uh, remember that story and not forget it, especially in these times. Renata, do you have anything to add to that? As early as 1867, 
there were leaders here in this state who wanted to give women the vote. We've identified about 111 suffragists by name here in the state. They were down at the legislature lobbying. Other states, they were often more radical. In West Virginia, we were a little more conservative and stuck to the regular processes of government. Whereas in Washington, D.C., you had, you know, people dressing up as goddesses and marching down the Pennsylvania Avenue and being arrested and thrown into jail and stuff. We didn't have that kind of action here in West Virginia, but we had women who were really, really dedicated. When ratification passed in West Virginia, and that's a whole great story because it was not a done deal. 36 states needed to ratify the amendment to the Constitution. When West Virginia came up, they were the, we were the 34th state. I will maintain that if it had failed in West Virginia, it would have lost the momentum and would not have passed that year. The women's right to vote was the largest expansion of democracy in our history. You know, we're in an election year and we want to remind people how hard people fought for the right to vote and how important it is and how important it is now and that we still need to fight for it. Susan, why ask for public input? I think the public can influence the appearance of the memorial. I think it also helps them continue to keep it in front of them that this is an important issue and participating in it becomes ownership of the statue, of the sculpture, whatever it becomes, that it is theirs, not just individuals who wanted to do something to celebrate the centennial, that it becomes it becomes ours, everyone's. So, Renata, what would you like to add? I see the public input process as part of the educational process about raising consciousness about women's right to vote, the importance of the vote, the long, hard struggle for women. I always am surprised at how people have such interesting ideas. And we're just a small group of people, nine people appointed by the governor. And we don't have all the answers or, you know, know what's best. And so we're looking to see all the creative minds and thinkers out there and what they think about it. I would point out, though, that in looking at this memorial and what it will look like, a lot of the memorials are personal. It's It reflects the people of the movement. And that's not necessarily what we're looking for. It can be something that is an imaginative and abstract to bring in the ideas of what it means to have the vote and, and what it means to be a woman. So I hope people think outside the typical monument or sculpture of one person. There were many people that were involved in this movement in West Virginia, and we certainly had our leaders that need to be recognized. But I I hope everyone is creative in how they think about the process. Where does the process go from here? What is, I think you said on your brochure that you wanted to have a design by December. We're going to start looking for an artist and some ideas. This is a kind of a pretty wide open public process right now. But once we have a design it probably won't be by December, but by early next year, we may have three different designs. And then we'll take that to the public again to choose among a more limited option. So maybe by next spring, we'll be have a design. We'll, then we'll do fundraising and ask for money to uh, actually build out this design. My goal is to, before the election of 2024, to have an unveiling and make a big deal about the importance of voting. That was Renata Poor and Susan Pierce, speaking with reporter Chris Schultz about their efforts to create a memorial to women's suffrage in West Virginia. Later in the show, we talk with an actress in Los Angeles who's telling the story of her great-grandfather, the first black undertaker in Charleston, West Virginia. What Campbell did to have funerals and have ceremony around so many families and people and in Charleston, Black families and Black people in Charleston is so important. That's coming up. You're inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. Tell me true about all the things 
you do while I'm out working down the line? I call on the telephone, but you never seem at home. You see, the well of truth has just gone dry. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University in Athens, West Virginia. With career-focused liberal arts education in more than 80 degrees and programs to pursue various career options, not just a single job. More at concord.edu. In eastern Kentucky, people are still cleaning up and trying to recover from floods in late July. People in mountain towns are struggling to rebuild their homes and their lives. But as Sherry Lawson reports, despite those challenges, neighbors continue to help each other. Stephen Bowling's family has been in Breathitt County since 1786. The 50-year-old says he and his family live on part of the property his great-grandfather got as a Revolutionary War soldier. Bowling is the public information officer for the county's fire department, and even though he was not touched by the high water and historic flooding at the end of July, he's been helping everyone who was. This was my 18th flooding event since I joined the fire department way back in 1987, I guess it was. As most people have noted, this was unlike anything that we have ever seen. Bowling is also the high school's volleyball coach and the executive director of the Breathitt County Public Library. But there's something else that defines Stephen Bowling, and it is probably one of the things that help him have such deep empathy for people who've lost everything in the flood. My oldest son was killed in an automobile accident in Florida on March the 16th of this year. And, uh, you know, that came just prior to all of this. We were still dealing with that. And, but you still get out and you still help people. As the public information officer for the fire department, Bowling isn't sitting behind a desk. He's out with the firefighters helping with recovery. Bowling says his son's death inspires him to keep going and help others. Losing a son is always difficult. 23 years old, junior at Moorhead State University. There was a medical emergency and the driver in the car passed out and he was killed as a result. As a matter of fact, there were three of them who died as a result of the accident. I've always had the philosophy When I'm out there with the fire department, when we're working wrecks, when we're working flood, I'm doing things for folks that I would want people to do for me if I was in need. So losing my son, we called him Breckenridge, was uh, even more incentive for me to help. Like Stephen Bowling, Mandy Schaffel was born and raised in the mountains of Appalachia. She and her husband and son live in Breathitt County, and her bookstore, The Red Spot at Newt in Hazard, is close by in Perry County. I met Mandy exactly one year ago at her bookstore while she waited on a steady flow of customers. Scheffel says the community rallied around her when she first opened her bookstore and then had to close its doors due to COVID. And now she, like most of her eastern Kentucky neighbors, is out every day helping everyone and anyone affected by the flood. I mean, it's been so heartwarming to see the way we just genuinely care about each other. And people don't wait to be told what to do. They're just stepping in and helping neighbors when they when they need help themselves. Scheffel says there's so much need right now it's hard to know what to do first. She says it's impossible to reach out to everyone who needs help. I mean, you imagine a situation where everybody you know and love has been impacted by some kind of disaster, and then there you are, and, you know, I would think, well, I've not reached out to this person. That feeling of guilt of, like, I can't touch base with everybody I know. There's so much to do, and... No matter what you did, it didn't feel like enough. Every day, Shuffle and her friend, Wallace Caleb Bates, make their way into the community. Bates lives in Breathitt County and is a writer for Kentucky Teacher, a publication of the Kentucky Department of Education. Even though his great-aunt was swept away in the flood and presumed dead, he makes time to volunteer with the nonprofit Aspire Appalachia. The 19-year-old says he's working to connect folks with access to things like drywall and insulation so they can get back into their homes. You know, a house, you know, it's a place for shelter, but a home is so much more. A home provides folks with the care and the nurture and the safety that folks need emotionally. While volunteers like Bates continue helping with recovery, musicians in the region are holding benefit concerts to raise money for flood relief efforts. 
Chris Preston, founding member of Coltown Dixie, an all-female bluegrass band from eastern Kentucky, says two of her band members were directly affected by the floods. Yet they've played their third benefit concert called Healing to the Holler. It's proven that music can heal. And in the events that we've played to benefit the flood, it's a fine line because you're having fun, you're playing music, people are up dancing, but then we have to remember that there were tragic losses. The mandolin player says the benefits for flood relief have raised an estimated $100,000. Whether it's a local fire department, a writer, or even a musician, neighbors are determined to help each other recover in hard-hit eastern Kentucky. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Sherry Lawson in Breathitt County, Kentucky. During the flood recovery, neighbors help neighbors. The volunteers are also streaming in from across the country. Stu Johnson reports on one agency coordinating flood recovery activities. Thousands of volunteers have traveled from near and far to eastern Kentucky since July 29th. Neighbors helping neighbors has been a common theme in responding to massive flooding. Many volunteers are also coming from across the country. The Christian Appalachian Project was founded in 1964 through the efforts of Reverend Ralph Biting, a priest from northern Kentucky. CAP's Luther T. Foley Mission Center is home to staff and volunteers. It was dedicated almost a decade ago in Floyd County. Currently, it's running full speed as a disaster recovery operation. Volunteers arrive all the time. Selection's getting skimpy, but uh, I like uh, a tougher glove to carry stuff if it's not mucky. Gary Bibby offers a tour of supplies to new volunteers last week. He's been on many mission trips, including travel to Africa, Peru, and Cuba. Bibby says the Kentucky experience has been hard-hitting. These are such wonderful people, and they're hurting right now. I've spoken with some that they just look like an empty shell, and there's obviously a reason for that. I've spoken to some that's lost family, lost their loved ones, lost their homes and their families, and it's, it's tragic. Bibby says, quote, we are required to help, adding to whom much is given, much is expected. A West Virginia native, Bibby now lives in Venice, Florida. A team of 10, most of them affiliated with the Nazarene Church, came north to help out. Here's Dave Canega, Dave Strickland, and Troy Moore. I came to CAP because I knew that they were in desperate need. Uh, many people have helped me throughout my life, and I am, uh, want to be a servant of Christ to help anyone that I possibly can. If I had to go and do one of the jobs we've been doing by myself, I, I wouldn't be able to do it. But working with um, like-minded people who want to serve, and uh, it's amazing. It's really amazing the experience of uh, fellowship here. It, it's an honor to work with them, and um, we're so blessed uh, to have what we have because you really do see the devastation, and it's heartbreaking. Staff at the Christian Appalachian Project facility near Martin feed and lodge volunteers. The dinner scene last week included a group of AmeriCorps members from all over the country. Rhea Rydell is from Orange County, California. She's had a passion for volunteering for well over a decade. I started volunteering at 10 years old with my mom, and she kind of installed a love for volunteering. Um, she passed away in October of last year, and she always dreamed about traveling the world and volunteering and helping as many people as she can. So I want to follow in her footsteps and kind of fulfill and live out her dream for her. Rydell says she's been thinking about her mom every single day while in Kentucky, especially since the anniversary of her death is coming up in October. Isabel Davis is originally from Phoenix, but spent more than a decade in Singapore. Just out of high school, she's looking to grow as a person and determine her path, maybe in social service or human geography. She spoke about an eastern Kentuckian volunteering with AmeriCorps workers who had lost her home in the flood. She wasn't going to say it. Someone else told us afterwards that all oh, that lady with the with the red hair, she was one of the people who lived like down the road who completely lost her home. She's living out of her car now. And it was just, she was helping other people, you know. People from New York, California, Florida, Arizona, and Indiana comprised the AmeriCorps team. 
Ciro Altamirano admitted he signed up for the 10-month service term because of his girlfriend who mentioned it to him. The Stratford, California native had never been outside the Golden State. He's been impressed by the care shown in the aftermath of the flood. How, like, they're really trying to help. They're really thinking about other people and not just themselves. And it's just really interesting because I really don't really see that much of that in the world. And I just really think that's really cool. I've never been to one of these things where I was like, where, like, I would volunteer. I would never have thought of it myself. AmeriCorps members typically range in age from 18 to 26. Jessie Limmer says she finished college, got her degrees, and had no idea what her next step would be. But the Long Island resident knew she didn't want to get behind a desk. With COVID cutting out much of the college socializing experience, Limmer feels like now is when she's getting some of that togetherness not found during college. It really allows introspection, which is, what the again, what the program is about, taking folks from where they're from and putting them in different scenarios to see how other folks in the country live. And it's humbling. It makes me gr- feel grateful. All, all these mixed emotions that I am proud that I'm getting to unpack this year. Tampa Bay Area's Mallory Brown sees herself in a period of transition. She said she did some internships and office work, but it didn't suit her. Brown says she sought something more aligned with her values, environmental interests, like trail restoration found in AmeriCorps. She says helping with flood recovery creates a feeling of belonging. It's, it's hard not to really rely on people when you're, when you're in such an intense situation, like being under a house and not being able to see where anything is and just covered in the grossest mud you've ever seen. But it's the kind of work that we're like ready and willing to do, and it's the kind of ways that we're ready and willing to support each other. And I think we all really benefit from the team dynamic being so intensely like camaraderie-based. The team leader for the AmeriCorps group is Alexa Rodriguez, also from Long Island. She served in AmeriCorps previously and said her team leader was a good role model. Lots happened after that impactful serving period. That included working up to a corporate-level job in the city, then unemployment in commercial real estate, in time in Puerto Rico. Rodriguez said she came back to New York, got another corporate job with a video game company, but it wasn't the same. She also views this time with AmeriCorps as transition. I lived in my apartment for nine years previous to this, and I packed everything else up, and I sold everything. I tossed it on the street. In New York, if you put anything on the curb, people will take it immediately. So um, I put everything out. People took it. It's gone. Um, And a little bit of things are in a storage unit right now, but outside of that, I've completely moved out of New York, and everything I own is with me currently right now. So wherever I, the wind takes me is the next step for me. Rodriguez says she's got eight months to figure out her next step. Thanks for a hard day's work. I'm sure, I'm sure most of you can agree that that happened for you today. Each night at the Mission Center following dinner, a debriefing occurs where volunteers have a chance to talk about the day. Leading the group discussion on another night last week was Michaela Fisher with CAP. She spoke about how volunteers can sometimes experience empathetic feelings. But yeah, for those who may have been negatively impacted by something, something that's probably weighing on their chest a little bit heavy, um, and we want them to kind of recognize uh, that vicarious trauma is real, and, and we want to make sure that you're taken care of. The Christian Appalachian Project disaster response began on July 28th. At this point, CAP has coordinated relief efforts for well over 400 volunteers at flood-damaged homes, and at the on-site distribution center. It's amounted to nearly 14,000 total hours with volunteers coming from almost every state. And the task is far from over. I'm Stu Johnson in Lexington. Lately, people have been finding more and more PFAS, known as forever chemicals. They're appearing at dangerous levels in Appalachia and across the country. The Pittsburgh-based Allegheny Front brings us a story on how PFAS are found in fracking fluid and the devastating impact they're having on human health. PFAS, known as forever chemicals, are used in everything from raincoats to firefighting foam. But they're also used in another activity, fracking. This is the Allegheny Front Environment Update. I'm Reed Frazier. For over a decade, Brian Letkanich has tied health problems he and his son have faced to fracking done by Chevron, just a few feet from his backyard in Washington County. 
Tests of his groundwater found a variety of chemicals associated with fracking, though the State Department of Environmental Protection ruled Chevron was not responsible for the pollution. Now, a team of researchers has found a new contaminant in his water, PFAS, chemicals that persist in the environment. They looked for a list of 14 sort of common PFAS, and they found seven of them. Christina Marusik of Environmental Health News has followed Letkanich's story. She said this could be the first evidence of PFAS that may be linked to fracking being found in groundwater. This testing actually happened because a local chapter of Engineers Without Borders was trying to help Brian get whole house water filtration. Um, They knew he'd been having these issues with his water for a decade. They had done projects like this in developing nations. And one of the people working on that team was a graduate student who worked um, under an expert studying PFAS at the University of Pittsburgh. So she decided to check his water for PFAS. And they were really surprised by what they found. That's how they did this round of testing and found the PFAS. What is PFAS and why is it a problem? So the acronym is short for perfluoralkyl and polyfluoralkyl substances. And uh, it describes a class of chemicals with more than 9,000 different chemicals that all have similar properties. And these are used to make stuff nonstick and waterproof. So they're in everything from pots and pans to clothing and takeout food wrappers. PFAS don't break down naturally, so they can accumulate in animal and human tissues over time, uh, which is which can cause problems. Um, so many of those 9,000 chemicals haven't ever been tested for safety, but exposure to the PFAS that have been studied pretty extensively has been linked to testicular and kidney cancers, decreased birth weights, thyroid disease, high cholesterol, a handful of other health issues. Is there PFAS in fracking chemicals and why would that be? So no one really knew that PFAS were being used in fracking chemicals until last summer when an advocacy group uh, called Physicians for Social Responsibility put out this report finding that PFAS might be widely used in fracking fluid and that they had been approved for that use by the EPA. The reason they're used is that they're extremely water repellent. So they can make the chemical mixture that's used uh, for fracking more stable and help it more efficiently flush oil and gas out of the ground at high pressure. And that is a very simple explanation. (laughs) There are much more complex explanations in the scientific literature um, that propose this use for them. But there's also a good amount of evidence that these chemicals are used during Uh, initial drilling for both fracking wells and other types of wells, conventional and other types of wells. And companies typically aren't required to disclose any of those chemicals in the same way they are required to disclose some fracking chemicals. And when when I asked, um, neither DEP nor Chevron was willing to share the list of chemicals that were used in the wells on Brian's property. Christina Marusik is a reporter for Environmental Health News. There's more on her reporting at our website, AlleghenyFront.org. That's the Allegheny Front Environment Update. I'm Reed Frazier. West Virginia currently allows medical cannabis in the treatment of specific chronic and terminal conditions. But as Chris Schultz reports, a proposed limit could significantly curb the plant's strength. On September 8th, the Medical Cannabis Advisory Board will hear a proposal to cap the THC in the state's medical cannabis products at 10%. The advisory board was created by the 2017 Medical Cannabis Act to advise the legislature by examining and analyzing cannabis laws inside and out of the state. When you're talking about medicine, we have to treat it like medicine. I think we really have to follow the science related to what is determined to be medicine. Dr. Stout is an addiction psychiatrist in Colorado. She presented the science to the board's health and medical workgroup meeting on August 16th, drawing from multiple clinical studies to show there is no evidence that THC levels over 10% pose any medical benefit. The only reason to have higher potency is to get high. That's the only reason. There's no documented medical benefit. And in fact, The documentation shows that the higher potency may be less effective medically. Stout is referring to a clinical study published in the November 2007 issue of the medical journal Anesthesiology, just one of several empirical studies she referenced in her presentation. 
While medical cannabis patients and advocates may not have rigorous research to back up their claims, they do have their own lived experiences with the plant's effects on their conditions. They argue these conclusions on the efficacy of medical cannabis are based on decades of misunderstanding and limited research. I always say 100 years of bad information is extremely hard to undo. And when we're talking about this plant, that's what we're up against. So education is the key to all of it. Rusty Williams is the state's patient advocate on the Medical Cannabis Advisory Board. He became an advocate for medical cannabis in West Virginia after his own battle with cancer and experiences with chemotherapy. It's important to note that I can only speak to my personal experience as a cannabis patient. And when I was going through chemotherapy, cannabis wasn't legal here. I was using illegal cannabis to get through it. And the lower the THC or the lower the potency, the more I had to consume to get the desired effect. Williams points out that as a Schedule One drug, the federal government does not recognize any medical benefit of cannabis. That scheduling has significantly restricted opportunities to study the complexities of cannabis for decades. As the plant and its derivatives have become more available in West Virginia over the past several months, Williams has consistently heard patients' firsthand accounts that high-dose THC products alleviate their symptoms. I understand that there are some people that high THC levels do affect negatively, but there's also a ton of patients out there that need those high THC levels. So why are we trying to cap and put all of the products on the exact same level when we know for a fact that the medical efficacy of high THC is effective for a lot of folks. THC is just one of the hundreds of compounds that cannabis naturally produces. While THC is the plant's main psychoactive component, patients say the relief they rely on comes from a combination of all the compounds combined, called the entourage effect. There's so much to learn. I mean, we're still learning on a daily basis what you can do with cannabis. We're learning about different cannabinoids on on a daily basis. Amanda Vezinat is a military veteran who was drawn back to West Virginia by the medical cannabis industry. She treats her service-related injuries and conditions with medical cannabis. And so I do I do know the difference it makes and putting a 10% THC cap on patients that's going to take away medication that we need. I mean, cancer patients aren't going to get anything out of it. We've watched patients die waiting for this program who never got relief. And now we're bringing relief to patients. It's, I don't know, it seems kind of cruel to take that away from them. Vezinat works for Armory Pharmaceutical, one of 10 companies licensed to grow and produce medical cannabis in the state. She says her company and others are eager to carry out clinical studies and trials to learn more about cannabis. But there is concern in the industry that a 10% cap wouldn't just limit patients' access to effective treatment, but functionally remove access to medical cannabis altogether in West Virginia. Well, you've got a bunch of companies that just sunk millions of dollars into facilities. They just threw away money. You cap this 10% THC and and the majority of everything that's been put out, pretty much everything that's been put out right now, it's going to have to be destroyed. They're going to have to start again. Vezinet and Williams both fear that many companies won't start again, choosing instead to cut their losses rather than reinvest in a capped market. The same federal restrictions on cannabis that limit scientific research also limit the tax breaks companies involved in the industry can take. It's not like other businesses, regular businesses that are federally legal. They can deduct their business expenses, and you do not have that in the cannabis industry. You're already losing money in a way in the industry since you can't deduct those expenses. So now you're going to ask them to take a bigger loss. The proposed cap still has several steps of bureaucracy it has to wind its way through before it takes effect. If the Medical Cannabis Advisory Board chooses to accept the proposal Thursday, it will then make its way to the legislature, adding more months of uncertainty in the fledgling medical cannabis program. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Chris Schultz in Morgantown. James Kubert Campbell was the first black undertaker and the first black city councilman in Charleston, West Virginia. Now, his great-granddaughter wants to tell his story. Samantha Stevens lives and works in Los Angeles as an actress in film and television. Bill Lynch spoke with Stevens about James Kubert Campbell and how she's working to keep his memory alive. 
how does your great grandfather and I guess into your life? Yeah, that's a good question. You know, he was somebody who I heard about throughout my life, but in really little detail. I knew that he had been uh, a Howard University graduate, that he was a lawyer, and then he wasn't making any money as a lawyer because black people couldn't afford him and white people didn't want to hire him. And so he changed careers and became an undertaker and was the first black undertaker in Charleston, West Virginia. And so that's all I really knew. And it wasn't something that I thought very much about. It just felt so distant. But during the pandemic and the events surrounding and after um, George Floyd's murder, and there was a lot of unrest everywhere. And here in LA, there were curfews and, you know, protests and riots and a lot of things going on. And I just started to look at the news in a different way and look at the, you know, George Floyd's family, Breonna Taylor's family who were mourning this loss, but because COVID was really raging, you know, they couldn't have the time to grieve. And that made me think about my great grandfather and what must it have been like for families who didn't have funerals before when he came into the picture. Now all of a sudden they have that opportunity to grieve. And that's kind of how he entered into my consciousness in a more significant way. Was he a Charleston native and and when? He was a native. He was born there. Um, The dates are a little conflicting. It seems like he was born between uh, 1874 and 1876. His father, who was also James Campbell, James Alexander Campbell, uh, he came up from Virginia. He was a slave in Virginia. He fought in the Civil War and then settled there shortly after the Civil War uh, and built a business as a barber. So my great-grandfather, James Cubert Campbell, he grew up in Charleston and really loved it from what I could see. Piecing this together, how much did you know going in and how much did you have to find out is later on? Yeah, it, it's crazy. I um, I only knew Howard University lawyer undertaker. Like that was it. That was all I've known for a very long time. And I decided to do some research at the suggestion of a friend. And I reached out to the lovely librarians at the Kanawha Library and they just started sending me articles and newspaper clippings, just any sort of mention of his name. And I would say at this point, I probably have about 100 articles that mention him. I have articles that he wrote himself when he was a newspaper columnist from about 1902 to 1909, which were just incredible to read uh, because he was covering politics and kind of social affairs uh, in DC at the time. But it didn't take long to get the information, and I think it's because he he was very, very aware of the power of media. And he wrote about that in his own columns. So I think when he got into business, he just knew, okay, I need to, I need to get press. <laughs> so it, it made it really easy and quick, luckily, to, to find things. I tried to find other family members that um, were related to him, and there wasn't as much luck, especially for the women in the family who weren't in business or anything. So I got really lucky, but I think it was because of his insight and tenacity. What happened with the Campbells? So he ran the funeral business for 44 years until he he was too ill to run it. It opened in 1912, uh, and he died in 56. He was also the first uh, Black city councilman in, in Charleston as well, which he held that position for about 25 years. So once he was once he was sick and he passed, my great grandmother Maddie, she tried to take over the business a little bit. She had some of his associates and, and employees that were trying to take it over. I know gentleman Buster, he took it over for a little bit, but then it, I think it just it wasn't the same. Um, my great uncle James, his son, uh, another James, a lot of James in the family, but um, he he and his father, they had a lot of disagreements about how the business would be run. So originally, my great grandfather did want to hand it down to his son, but there were too many control issues from what I can understand. And my uncle James just kind of ran off and didn't want to deal with that. So the business ended up closing and Maddie sold the house to the state, which is now where the highway is. So it was 
a victim of the redlining. And, you know, my uncle James, he went to Ohio to raise his family. Um, My aunt Marjorie, she also went to Ohio. And then my grandmother, Charlotte, she married my grandpa and they, he was also from West Virginia. They stayed there for a little bit. And then uh, by the time my mother was about six, they moved to New Jersey. And my grandmother really just took her inheritance and built a house in New Jersey, became a marriage and family therapist. And that was it. I was born in New Jersey, grew up in Pennsylvania. And so our family really just spread out. And from what I understand, the reasoning was that Charleston just didn't feel safe for them. Uh, The KKK was allegedly more active than they were before, I I guess, with violence and things. And yeah, the Campbell children, though they grew up very privileged, they still were Black people living in West Virginia and did not feel that that was a safe place for them to be. Getting the marker is a difficult process. It is. It's a difficult process. And so we were trying to get the marker placed at West Virginia State University and Institute because Campbell, he had some land out there. He actually left two plots of land and Institute to his grandson, who was seven years old at the time that he passed. Uh, so he was a seven-year-old landlord, <laughs> landowner. And there, the university was considering it. I've, I've since heard that they're no longer considering it. And so we're looking for a new place for it to land. Unfortunately, you know, the House of Campbell, the funeral home was a part of the, I guess, the Triangle District and what was known as the Block. And the Block is no longer there. Um, A lot of the businesses, just like the funeral home, were either sold to the state or redlining, from what I understand. So there are two markers that are in that area that we're looking at space there and some parks. So it's still being figured out, being sorted out. Why is this important to history, to posterity, uh, to Charleston now? You know, I had heard that before there were Black undertakers that Black people were buried in mass graves. And there were segregated cemeteries. There obviously have been so many issues surrounding race in our country in West Virginia. What Campbell did to have funerals and have ceremony around so many families and people and in Charleston, Black families and Black people in Charleston is so important, you know, to show that people's lives mattered that people care, that people will miss them. You know, they were a part of our lives. And I think the marker honors not only him, but honors those that he honored. Along with the local marker, Stevens is developing a television series inspired in part by her great-grandfather's life. Till next time, thanks for joining us as we journey throughout Appalachia. Our theme music is by Matt Jackford. Other music this week was provided by John Wyatt, Del McCurry, Tyler Childers, and many, many musicians at Floyd's Friday Night Jamboree. Bill Lynch is our producer. Alex Runyon is our associate producer. Our executive producer is Eric Douglas. Kelly Libby is our editor. Our audio mixer is Patrick Stevens. Xander Alloy also helped produce this episode. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter, at InAppalachia. You can also send us an email to InsideAppalachia at WVPublic.org. Visit WVPublic.org slash InsideAppalachia to subscribe or stream all of our stories. Or look for Inside Appalachia on your favorite podcast app. Inside Appalachia is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University in Athens, West Virginia, 
with career-focused liberal arts education in more than 80 degrees and programs to pursue various career options, not just a single job. More at concord.edu.